The following is an audiobook teaser of The Life of Tom Marshall by Jim Stumm, narrated by Phoenix Aurora. The full audiobook will be released at some point in the future, but for now, you can order the paperback via Liberty Under Attack Publications. Just visit libertyunderattack.com slash lifeoftom. Again, libertyunderattack.com slash lifeoftom. Or consider getting your copy as part of the Bonyu bundle. Enjoy. The Life of Tom Marshall by Jim Stum. Liberty Under Attack Publications. Dedication to Rhea, who walked this path before any of us thought of it, and to the freedom pioneers carving niches of personal autonomy in a world opposed to it. Forward. Three years ago, I came across Rayo's book, Vanu, The Search for Personal Freedom, by mere happenstance. I was definitely impressed when I read it, so much so that we spent six or so hours discussing the strategy of Vanu during our direct action series on Liberty Under Attack Radio. I put the book away for a few months, but continued thinking about the ideas Rayo presented in this book. I'd come across an onslaught of freedom strategies and a unique way of thinking about the world. It took some time for me to process it all. At that same time, I was trying to recruit Kyle Reardon to join LUA Radio as a co-host. He refused time and time again, and I realized there was a way to get two birds stoned at once. Trailer Park Boys reference. So, one night on a Skype call, I brought up the idea. The conversation went something like this. So, Kyle, since you're being a prick and won't officially join LUA Radio, let's start the Vanu podcast. There's literally no one else on the planet that can do this with me, so you don't really have a choice. He probably sighed and responded, yeah, yeah, all right, I'll do it. Over the next few months, we planned out the podcast, set up the website, and started recording episodes towards the end of December, beginning of January 2017. We didn't officially launch the podcast until the end of January 2017, though. When that first podcast went up on iTunes and the other podcatchers, I was and wasn't surprised by the response. On one hand, I knew there were others looking for something different than what was out there at the time, or if not something different, just something that got their attention, something that inspired them. We quickly garnered a niche audience, attracting many individuals who made comments like, this is what I've been doing my whole life, I just didn't have the word for it, or this is the strategy I've been looking for. In Season 1, we focused on the philosophy of Vanu, covering subjects like comparative Vanu, comparing and contrasting Vanu with anarchic schools of thought, legal intercises, utilizing legal loopholes to increase one's liberty, controlled schizophrenia, the mental condition of being a citizen serf, the servile society, collective movementism, mean time to harassment, how Vanuans gauge the efficacy of their Vanu, and a couple of philosophical articles by Rayo. Season 2, entitled The Practice of Vanu, shifted the podcast towards action, but only strategies Rayo discussed in his writings. Those subjects included financial independent early retirement, ethical enclave trading, free isles and free ports, along with case studies, intentional communities, local congregations like the Free State Project or, more aptly, Free Keen, Crypto-anarchism, Rayo was an early cyberpunk, merely due to the fact that he was so privacy and security focused. Strategic relocation, country shopping, living on a sailboat, van nomadism, 
Vanu home bases, food storage, freemates, avenging angels, Vanuing in cities, and self-liberational media. Our current Season 3, entitled The Expansion of Vanu, will be ongoing indefinitely, alongside our intermission episodes. Throughout the duration of the podcast, we had been archiving and digitizing any old Vanu publications we could get our hands on. But our archive was still quite scarce. I scoured the internet and was able to get a handful or so, but the leads ran dry. In 2017, I came across an individual named Wally Conger, who had been in Southern California in the 1980s, attending dinner parties with prominent libertarians of the time. He was subscribed to a number of these old zines and recently sent me his collection, some 25 new editions of Innovator, along with other unique publications. Just a couple weeks ago, I also came in contact with Jim Stum, the author of the book you're about to read. He sent me the physical copy of this publication and some others. He also volunteered to send me copies of anything he has, which is basically everything from the 1960s to today. This is absolutely huge in our chronicling of this freedom strategy, as well as Tom Marshall's life. Speaking of Jim, I would like to thank him for all of his work over the years, both in the self-liberational media realm, as well as his efforts in archiving these newsletters. Since he published Rayo's book under the pen name John Fisher, I'm confident this podcast would never have been started if it wasn't for his contributions. He also helped me greatly in a project that I've been working on, namely something like the Ultimate Rayo Collection. All of his articles laid out in chronological order in one massive collection. Thanks to the appendices at the end of this book, in addition to his chronicling of Rayo's known life below, my job is much easier now. So, where is Vanu today? It's obviously impossible to quantify how many Vanuans there were when Rayo started writing, and up to and around his disappearance. My speculation is that there are more Vanuans today, for two reasons. First off, the proliferation of the internet has exposed millions of individuals to the possibility of alternative lifestyles. The van nomad movement, the tiny house movement, the off-grid homestead movement, etc. Many of these individuals chose to pursue the lifestyles for reasons irrespective of ideology or politics. Some just saw the current economic situation for what it was and wanted something different out of their lives. Secondly, the political climate here in the USSA and throughout the world is devolving rapidly, and the best way to create more anarchists or Vanuans is for the state to become even more tyrannical. As the hollow stone of freedom is bled dry, more and more will decide to leave the plantation. That's the hope, obviously, and that's what appears to be happening. A couple of quick notes before I turn you over to the life of Tom Marshall. First off, anytime you see an editor's note, that is Jim speaking. Secondly, there are two portions early on that contain speculation on Jim's part. I'm leaving those in here for the historical record, but the inaccuracies will be formatted as such, with a line through the text. Coming across Rayo and Vanu has drastically changed my life for the better. For years, I jumped from ideology to ideology, stumbling through the dark in search of increased personal freedom. It took a long time, relatively speaking, to exercise my collectivist roots. Now, on the other side of it all, I have a clear path forward for my self-liberation, and I have the great honor 
of getting to pass this message of hope and freedom onto you. I hope you will take up the mantle and begin your pursuit of self-liberation. After all, Vanu is yours for the making. Shane Radliff, July 2019, vanupodcast.com. The Life of Tom Marshall He was called the Mystery Man of the Libertarian Movement. Liberty Magazine, August 1987, page 11. Tom Marshall, sometimes known as El Rayo or Rayo, invented the word and the idea of Vanu, which means becoming invulnerable to coercion by living out of sight and out of mind of persons who would coerce you. Usually this meant hiding out in the wilderness, but Vanu in cities was also considered. Tom wrote about his ideas in many small newsletters. I have copies of most of them. I have edited collections of Tom's writings twice before, in the Vanu book, published by Lumpanics, now out of print, and in my 27-page report, Vanu Book 2, Letters from Rayo. From the articles Tom published, we can get a good idea of his movements and activities for about 10 years. What I will do here is put Tom's reports of where he was and what he was doing in chronological order. I'll add some reasonable speculation about what he was doing before and after that time, although we know nothing certain about that part of his life. For some of us, libertarians of a certain age, Tom was an important and inspirational figure, even if we didn't entirely agree with his ideas or follow his way of life. This sketch of his life will show that he was no armchair philosopher. He dared to live according to the ideas that he sincerely believed. The Early Years I am a consulting engineer, 36 years old, no family. That's what he wrote in Preform Number 1, June 1968, page 4. So if Tom was 36 in 1968, he must have been born in 1932. He never published a word about his early life, as far as I know. And I have no other information about it. But he was 20 in 1952, which means he was draft age at the time of the Korean War. He never wrote about military service, never said whether he had or had not been in the military, or if he had dodged the draft. Certainly, the kind of person he was in 1960, and later, he would not have volunteered. As an engineer, he must have graduated from college, so most likely he was in college in the early 1950s. Perhaps he had a student deferment or was passed over by his draft board. We don't know. We don't know where he went to college. He never mentioned that earlier. But since he never indicated any familiarity with any locale east of the West Coast, it seems reasonable to guess that he grew up and went to school somewhere on the West Coast. The earliest we know of him he is living in or near Los Angeles, so perhaps that's where he grew up. His known travels take him up and down the West Coast, from Baja to British Columbia, and points in between, but never east of there. As an aside, I have been informed by someone who should know that Tom Marshall grew up in New England before moving west. Authors note Jim Stump. The following also can be updated. By no family, he apparently means he has no wife or children. Whether he had parents living at this time or other relatives, we don't know. He never mentioned them in writing, 
He also never said outright that he had no such relatives. He appears to be such a singular person that one is tempted to think he might have been an orphan, but there's no actual evidence of that either. Narrator's note. That last paragraph is now known to be incorrect. Back to Jim Stump. In the 1960s and 70s, Tom thought a nuclear war was imminent. At the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis, 1962, he told his employer he was heading for the hills, and immediately did so, according to Ben Best in Liberty, August 1987, page 14. Other than that detail, Tom's life is a complete mystery before 1963. Some additional information might be available from public records, but I haven't used that resource. Free Isles The first extensive information we have about Tom concerns his participation in the old preform inform, the Free Isles Project. Tom looks back to that time when he writes in 1969. I was active in the original preform, which, from 1963 to 1965, was an advanced study group seeking development of one or more free isles. A free isle was to be an open commercial city with sovereign independence and complete liberty. Constructed in the ocean or on territory leased from existing nations, Preform did research and gave presentations to several hundred freedom seekers, but stopped short of acquiring an island. From the beginning, we were all well aware of difficulties in obtaining and defending territory, but believed we could overcome these. We had not anticipated, however, the growing restrictions on international trade and travel, trade especially vital to a free isle during its first decade, threat of further restrictions and or a major U.S. depression cooled our enthusiasm. Innovator, A69, pages 7 to 72. The newsletters and other papers I have from the original preform give the impression that Tom was an active participant in their activities, but they don't reveal exactly what Tom's doing. With one exception, the January 1964 newsletter says that Tom presented a paper, The Case for Constitutionalism, at their October 13, 1963 meeting. The August 1964 issue adds that this paper describes some of the abuses that might occur in an attempted system of competitive dispute resolvers, and presents some of the advantages of a constitutionally limited government which operates as an explicit monopoly within a geographical area. So this paper, expressing Tom's views at that time, apparently argued for minarchism and against anarcho-capitalism. More than that, I can't say, because I don't have a copy of Tom's The Case for Constitutionalism. Although, I do have the paper he was apparently responding to, Competitive Dispute Resolvers, a 14-page paper written by Gil Cantwell. Innovator. In 1964, Preform became less active as many of the participants began devoting their time to either supporting Goldwater in the presidential election or to writing for and promoting Innovator, a new libertarian newsletter that began publishing at the time. Tom was a major contributor to Innovator, but it wasn't his personal newsletter. In the beginning, the Forum for New Ideas is listed as the publisher, and Kara Leach is listed as the owner and general manager. In November 1964, Conda Carter takes over as general manager, and Kerry Thornley is named as editor. Through Innovator's run, the colophone indicates that various people assume different responsibilities at different times. From April to June 1965, Tom Marshall is named as the general manager. 
And from July through December of 1965, Tom is editor, according to the colophon. After that, El Rey is listed as a contributing editor, along with a number of others. The March 1968 issue does not list El Rey as the editor for that issue. The April 1968 issue does not list El Rey or Tom Marshall in the colophon, but there is an article by El Rey in that issue. The next issue, Winter 1969, El Rey is once again named as the issue editor. Then the last issue of Innovator, Autumn, 1969, lists El Rey and The Gatherer as issue editors. It also appears that Tom wrote almost all of the last issue under various names. In all, it appears that Tom wrote at least 46 full-size articles and a few shorter items that were published in Innovator from 1964 through 1969. He may have written others that were published under other pen names, but El Rey is the only pen name that I know for sure is Tom. And there are a couple of names withheld articles that I strongly suggest were written by him. The written by Tom article count by year is 1964, 8, 1965, 14, 1966, 1, 1967, 7, 1968, 4, and 1969, 12. His involvement with Innovator is the only activity of Tom's that we know of for the years 1964 through 1967, with one exception, Bella Coola Journey. This is the title of an article by Tom Marshall that was published in the September 1967 issue of Innovator. I believe this was the first article that describes his own activities. All previous articles by Tom or L. Ray are either theoretical or they describe interesting activities of other people. This is a report concerning a trip he took to Bella Coola, British Columbia, Canada in late July and early August, presumably 1967. He drove to Bella Coola, which is a small town on an inlet of the ocean where the road ends. There he unpacked a folding kayak he had brought with him and he spent the next 10 days or so paddling along the ocean inlets and camping on the beaches. He describes the features of the area in light of its suitability as a place for hiding out in the wilderness. He doesn't mention a companion, so apparently he was alone on this trip. That's all we know about his activities in 1967. The following years are better documented. Bella Coola Journey For wilderness retreats or summer anchorages, an especially attractive area is the north coast of British Columbia, a land of snow-capped mountains, dense forests, rushing streams and deep fjords. Its potential advantages include ocean access, myriad channels, arms, and inlets, many extending over 50 miles inland, provide more seacoast than all of the continental United States. Among the almost endless inlets, bays, and islands are places a small boat could hide indefinitely. Geographical isolation, rugged mountain ranges limit transportation to water, which is slow, and air, which is expensive. Only two roads and one railroad penetrate the region. Sparse population. The whole North Coast region, roughly from Queen Charlotte Strait to the Alaska Panhandle and inland to the Coastal Divide, larger than Ohio, has a population of less than 40,000 people. And most of these are concentrated around the few cities. Arable land and commercial timber exist only as small pockets in river valleys and deltas, precluding large-scale settlements. 
In July and August, I explored some of the lands and waterways of this country. My route of travel was by automobile to Bellacoola, then by kayak to Nascal Bay on Dean Channel. Although Bellacoola lies less than 300 miles from Vancouver by air, the highway distance is 650 miles. I first drove inland and north to Williams Lake, then northwest on a fair to middling graded dirt road across the Fraser Plateau, separated from the ocean by mountains. This 3,000-foot plateau has a climate quite different from the coast, more like the higher plateaus of Colorado and Wyoming. Mild summers, cold winters, and little precipitation. The road to Bellacoola crosses gently rolling land, open forests of large pole pine with some Douglas firs, spruce, and aspen, an occasional creek or lake. Cattle ranching is the principal industry. The few small settlements have a frontier look. Log cabins, unpretentious yards, pole fences. After 250 miles of little variation, the land changes abruptly as the road descends steeply with several switchbacks to the Bellacoola Valley. Within a few miles, one plunges from the cool, open woods of the uplands into a warmer, humid, dense jungle of giant arbor vitae and Douglas firs. The road winds down the valley past a few logging operations and guest lodges. Then, 20 miles from saltwater, the road becomes paved and wilderness is replaced by long-settled-looking farms and homes. Bellacoola contrasts with the rough and rustic interior settlements, seeming, if one ignores the spectacular snow-capped peaks around it, more like a country town of the U.S. South than the trading center for thousands of square miles. The few businesses are scattered over a several block area. Judging from the types of enterprise, tourism is not an important industry. Prices are surprisingly low, considering Bellacoola's isolation and smallness as a market. A lunch consisting of a ham sandwich, pie, and milk costs about 70 cents. A loaf of locally baked bread sold for 26 cents, and three pounds of powdered milk costs $1.40. Prices are in Canadian dollars, which currently exchange for about 93 cents U.S. Gasoline cost, 48 cents per imperial gallon, equivalent to about 37 cents per U.S. gallon. My boat was a 17-foot folding kayak, which weighs 125 pounds, complete with optional sloop sailing rig. I transported it to Bellacoola in disassembled form, parts less than 5 feet long, put it together on the banks of the river above town, and paddled downstream to the channel. The trip from Bellacoola to Nascal Bay took about five days. Four days were consumed struggling the 18 miles down North Bentnick Arm and Burke Channel against strong headwinds and often white-capped waves. I traveled these waters only during the early morning when wind and waves were minimum. Even the hard paddling netted only one knot headway. An attempt at upwind sailing in Burke Channel proved unproductive. The full bot will go into the wind reasonably well in calmer water, but not when fighting three-foot waves. Once beyond Bellacoola, the only signs of man were fishing boats, about a dozen past, a couple of logging operations, and the remains of piers, log boom, and cabins in some of the bays. The shores are mostly low cliffs, with some pebbly to rock beaches on the bays. On overnight stops, I either dragged the full bit up a beach to the tidal zone, up to 15 feet, or tied up offshore. One of the most attractive camping places was a little cove, which, strangely enough, doesn't show up on the land status map, just northeast of Lalakata Point. 
sandy beach, trickling creek, and a hillside covered with black raspberries and red bilberries. On the fifth day, I passed Misachi Nose, turned into La Boucheret Channel, and, for a change, had calm water and a light tailwind. With mainsail alone, I ghosted downwind to Dean Channel and then across it on an easy, broad reach to Nascal Bay. Dean Channel was calmer than Burke had been, although a rain squall coming swiftly up channel caused some rough moments. Half a mile long, Nascal Bay has the shape of an hourglass, open on one end. A boat can anchor in the back portion, out of sight of Dean Channel, or the front. It is variously bordered by grassy, swampy, and rocky beaches, and, in one spot, by sheer cliffs. Nascal Hot Spring lies near the mouth. Reportedly, about ten years ago, Crown Zellerback Corporation, which has a large pulp mill at Ocean Falls, twenty miles to the west, surveyed Nascal Valley for hydroelectric potential. The survey crew built a bathhouse, a shack whose sole furnishing is a bathtub set into the floor. A pipe runs back into the hot spring. Since then, the bath has been used and fortuitously maintained by passing fishing and pleasure craft. During the three days I was in or around the bay, at least a dozen boats stopped by. On the return trip, I found a light northeast breeze down Dean Channel and sailed across the Labouche Channel. There, I encountered a light headwind, but with calm water and the wind following the zigzag channel, I made good headway with minimum tacking. Reaching Burke Channel, the sails caught the prevailing southwest winds, and the boat was off racing the waves, sometimes surfing on long swells for a minute at a time, sometimes crashing through short chop. The boat ran before the wind. Comments on Equipment The basic fullbit proved to be seaworthy, riding easily with the largest non-breaking waves encountered. Under the same conditions, 40-foot fishing boats pounded heavily. With a waterproof kayak covering, which I lacked, to prevent swamping, I would trust it on the open ocean in average weather. However, the sailing gear has some design faults. A small onboard motor, available as an option, would facilitate cruising. Hip boots are desirable for travel along rivers and through swamps. A handgun, although illegal in Canada, is much easier to carry through the woods, for defense, than is a rifle. One sixteenth-inch netting will stop horseflies and mosquitoes, but not the gnats, which live on the coast. I encountered none in the interior. Several layers of loose clothing, plus liberal and frequent applications of repellent on exposed skin, kept the bugs at bay during the day. Insect pests are about as common as in more moist portions of the United States. At low elevations, forest grows everywhere except on naked rock, tidal flats, and swamps. Any natural clearing in a river valley will be marsh, not dry grassland. Common species include western hemlock, giant arborvitae, sitka spruce, western white birch, Douglas fir, yellow cypress, and black cottonwood. Plus, on the more exposed slopes, the lodgepole pine. In the shade of some of the denser stands on the delta lands, there is little undergrowth. Elsewhere, it is heavy and includes young hemlocks, bilberries, ferns, mosses, smalcinas, and, in wet spots, devil's club. Rocks seen were exclusively igneous, many showing intrusions. Palatable berries include blue and red bilberries, salmon berries, and red and black raspberries. The blue bilberry, Vaccinium avalifolium, 
which makes up most of the undergrowth in many places, is related to and bears fruit shaped like blueberries. Blue bilberries are usually mildly sweet, like a blueberry, but some bushes, which look no different, bear berries which taste weedy or foul. Unlike raspberries, all berries on a bush ripen together and remain edible for a long time. Edible greens include plantain, fireweed, clover, ferns, and the various conifers. Only The only poisonous plants I noticed were water hemlock and baneberries, in a few swampy areas. Salmon were running in Dean Channel while I was there. Mussels grow on some rocky beaches near large rivers. The water is apparently too fresh. I did not see large game animals. Perhaps they moved to higher ground in summer. A few squirrels were encountered. Due to the highly irregular terrain, coastal British Columbia shows great climactic variation. Each river valley, channel, or inlet essentially has one or more local climates. A few generalizations can be made. Summers are drier and sunnier than winters. Precipitation usually increases with elevation, but many anomalies remain. For instance, Bellacoola, at the head of an inlet, averages 55 inches of precipitation per year. Ocean Falls, 50 miles to the west, and also at the head of an inlet, averages 164. Bella Bella, 30 miles still further west and on a channel, receives 99 inches. Judging from plant maturity and comments by local people, weather stations being far and few between, Dean Channel has about the same summer weather as Bellacoola, but a colder winter. It is more exposed to frigid northeast winds from the interior. One man said that the high precipitation and cloudiness at Ocean Falls is a localized condition caused by the shape of the valley. Reporting that Ocean Falls would be overcast and raining for days at a time, while eight miles away in Dean Channel, the sun was shining. The most detailed map available does not show terrain features smaller than a quarter mile. Aside from that, only a few discrepancies were noted, including, if a map be believed, a river which flows uphill, King Island about latitude 52 degrees 17 minutes north by longitude 126 degrees 27 minutes west. Perhaps this can be attributed to wishful thinking by the government's Department of Lands, Forests, and Water Resources. During my stay in Canada, I was not molested by any large animals, not even the most vicious and loathsome of predators, the state bureaucrat. I camped out exclusively, not only in the wilderness, but in relatively settled areas. During ten days spent on rough waters in a conspicuously small, open, and unlicensed boat, a few passing fishermen solicitously asked if everything was all right. No Canadian equivalent of the Coast Guard ordered me off the waters. During a one-day tryout of the Fullbot on Piru Lake, California, I was ordered out for not having registration and local permits. While many Canadian laws and regulations are as onerous as their U.S. counterparts, on paper, enforcement in an area with a population of less than one person per square mile presents something of a problem for even the most determined power seeker. The Canadian government will not sell outright any waterfront land. Of course, this is to preserve it for recreational use, but this poses no problem for the libertarian nomad who intends only to be a squatter. You've just heard an audiobook teaser of the life of Tom Marshall by Jim Sturm, narrated by Phoenix Aurora. 
The full audiobook will be released at some point in the future, but for now, you can order the paperback via Liberty Under Attack Publications. Just visit libertyunderattack.com slash lifeoftom. Again, libertyunderattack.com slash lifeoftom or consider getting your copy as part of the Bonu bundle. And to view our entire catalogue of books, bundles, ghost phones, ghost pads, and more, visit libertyunderattack.com. Liberty Under Attack Publications, share your story, find your freedom, 